Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome to Human Monsters. Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel was born on March 13, 1927, in New York City. His family moved to Detroit, but eventually emigrated to Scotland, where his parents were from. They settled in the township of Lanarkshire. Peter absorbed enough influence from American culture to find himself an alien among his alumni at school. He studied with older students who were learning at a higher level, and as a result, he was unprepared. He couldn't keep up with his classmates and was mocked and bullied both by them and the faculty. Signs of transgressive behavior emerged in elementary school. A teacher attributed to him a drawing left on a desk that they described as unspeakably filthy. She confronted him about it and noted that, quote, he showed no sign of remorse. Peter graduated from petty mischief to legitimate crime when he was 11 years old. He became a thief, first stealing from a box into which a church received donations. Nearing the end of October 1939, he was breaking into shops and stealing. He was charged and sentenced to a stint in reform school. Peter Manuel was evaluated by doctors at this time to ascertain if he was mentally ill. Though he was dishonest and often redirected blame at others when he was caught, they found no signs of a debilitating mental illness undermining his ability to function in day-to-day -day life. The following is an excerpt from a report about his personality and behavior. The school report of the probationer is anything but satisfactory. Out of school, he is said to be always in trouble. At school, he is said to be cunning and puts on an air of innocence and is very deep. He is deceitful, difficult to believe, 
and appears to be the ringleader on most occasions. At one time, he was constantly at the dirt track and suspected of theft. He seems to go where he pleases. Once he stayed out all night after being chased by the police for the suspected theft of a one-pound note from a pocketbook at the dirt track. The headmistress's final note was that the lad should be away from his present environment. He has led younger boys into trouble, and he consorts with those suspected of theft. Probationer, after committing the offense for which he appeared at court on October 20th, was arrested by the station police at 10.30 p.m. as he was trying to obtain a ticket to go to Glasgow. He asked when at court for five other shot-breaking offenses to be taken into consideration. He tried to incriminate other boys, but the police satisfied themselves that nobody else was implicated. He hid a certain amount of money, and it was not recovered. The parents were ordered to refund this amount. I am not at all surprised that the boy has appeared again at court, and there is no doubt, whatever, that the magistrates adopted a correct attitude and committed him to an approved school. Peter was sent to a strict Catholic school in hopes that the administration would reform his behavior. In one evaluation of his behavior, they wrote, while actually with us, was well-behaved and appeared happy and contented. Peter could sell anyone on this disposition, artificial though it was. This didn't correct his behavior, not one bit. He ran away frequently. In his absence, he committed one theft or burglary after another. This time it was different. Basic break-in, add violence. At the age of 14, he broke into a woman's house, and when she ran into him, he was toting an axe. He didn't hack her body into haggis fodder, but the encounter gave her a nervous breakdown. June 1942. Peter ran away from school once again. He committed three break-ins during this crime spree. On one occasion, a woman woke to find he was pounding her on the head with a hammer. He stole her valuables and left her with a concussion and a cerebral hemorrhage, though she survived. Peter was arrested for this incident. He pled guilty, but was at a loss for words when asked for a motive. The head was his favorite target on a victim. More thievery ensued. When he was 15 years old, he committed another assault after escaping from reform school. He grabbed the wife of a faculty member and whacked her with a stick. He broke her nose and shoulder bone. He followed up by dragging her to a forest, tearing off her clothes, and attempting to rape her. He was unable to climax. Peter was remanded to yet another school for boys. Peter was released from custody yet again in March 1945. His behavior changed markedly. He took to referring to himself in the third person. He became enraptured by American criminals, 
real, like Babyface Nelson and Al Capone, and of the fictitious variety, as seen in gangster movies. He resumed his career in burglary and theft, though he was more careful about not getting caught. He made more money doing this than he did by working legitimate jobs, which he seldom held for longer than three weeks. He was reckless in the sense of breaking into houses in his own neighborhood. He single-handedly caused an uptick in property offenses. Peter Manuel was a one-man crime wave. Manuel's wartime burglaries ended one day in 1946, when he was spotted departing from a house he had invaded. His father became a municipal councillor and used his political connections to get Manuel released by paying a 60-pound fine. Peter Manuel began to rape and rob women. He got away with the first couple of offenses, but a woman known as D.C. Muncie came along. It was March 8, 1946, at 9.30 p.m. She was walking down the road when she had the distinct feeling of being followed. She didn't see anyone around her. Suddenly, someone forced her to the ground. They placed a hand over her mouth. She tried to bite the flesh of the palm, but he bashed her head on the ground. He told her to be still and shut her mouth. She begged for clemency and offered her purse as collateral for her life. He ignored this appeal. He pulled her up to her feet. With one of her hands behind her back, he drew her toward a railroad bridge. She begged him for mercy, telling him she had just gotten out of the hospital. This was true, as she had been treated for tuberculosis. He punched her and forced her onward toward the railway embankment. It was an isolated and quiet spot where disruptions and the observations of good Samaritans were few and far between. He pushed her to the ground, ripped her clothes off, and raped her. He finished by tying her scarf tightly around her eyes and departing from the scene. D.C. Muncie reported the incident to police. She was able to identify him in a lineup. She fainted as soon as she laid eyes on him. There was DNA evidence, such as semen stains on her clothing. Manuel was remanded to custody. When he appeared in court, an indecent assault charge was dropped, but he was still charged with rape. Peter chose to defend himself. As quickly as he buried himself due to his legal ineptitude, the jury, just as quickly, appeared in court after only 15 minutes of deliberation and announced a guilty verdict. He was sentenced to eight years in prison. He was charged for many of his burglaries, 18 to be exact. He was found guilty of 15. He was sentenced to a year for burglary. His attempted appeals were as ill-fated as his turn at representing himself in court. Prison did little to scour Peter Manuel's brain of its orientation toward malfeasance. In particular, he was plotting revenge against someone referred to as Mr. McKenzie. In a letter to his parents, he wrote, 
You see, I am prepared to do the eight years because I will have the satisfaction of giving Mackenzie the little article he was looking for. You tell me I am best to do my time and forget him, but unfortunately for Mr. Mackenzie, I'm not made like you. I know from your point of view that sounds all right, but it is me who is doing the sentence. I am watching the best years of my life roll away, and I can tell you that after doing a year, it's no picnic. That is why I say it is no good giving advice. My mind is made up. Mackenzie is going to get it. But from what you have told me, he has been on to you as well. Well, next time you see him, remind him that he has a wife and kids too, and five years and three months to make the best of it. But mind and stress the wife and kids bit. He will understand. Well, I think that's all for now. So, cheerio, your loving son, Peter. The letter was intercepted by prison authorities and never sent. Manuel was a pain in the ass to prison authorities. He constantly ran afoul of prison rules and complained about the way he was treated usually characterizing the treatment as unjust. A prison psychiatrist wrote a report that could very well have served as a life review for Peter Emanuel. His record from the age of 12 makes it clear he is an aggressive psychopath. He has had all the benefits of the juvenile court treatment and Borstal treatment, and it is doubtful whether even at the beginning of his sentence, any constructive work could have been done with him. There is nothing I can suggest now. October 1952. Peter Manuel was released from prison and moved back into his family's home. He worked one job after another, fired from each. He was a dyed-in-the-wool criminal. He was seduced by the glamour of the underworld and that was where he felt he belonged. He wasn't far off the mark. A man named Mad Frankie Fraser was an author and former leading figure in London's underworld. He recalled that Peter Manuel offered to work as a hitman for gangs, but he was rejected because, quote, he couldn't keep his yaps shut. Indeed, he liked to talk big. He always tried to sell himself as the Al Capone of the United Kingdom. The truth was, he was small potatoes. He would meet with police officers at restaurants and claim he had inside information about offenders and their crimes. It took no time for them to laugh off his tall tales and stiff him with the bill. He regaled his co-workers at his many jobs with these fictions, but they didn't need to see flies encircling his head to know he was full of shit. In late 1954, Peter Manuel began dating Anna O'Hara. He was ever the gentleman, buying flowers, candy, and never getting fresh without the A-OK. -okay. They became engaged, but after her family found out about his criminal past, the couple went their separate ways. The local police also knew about his criminal past, and they were keeping tabs on him. July 30th, 1955. 
Mary McLaughlin was walking home from a dance at around 11.30 p.m. While heading down a lane, she was attacked from behind. The assailant forced her to the ground. She saw that he was brandishing a knife. With hand and glove, he stifled her cries. He told her he would cut her throat if she made any noise. He pushed her over a fence onto a field. She managed to scream. It turned out there were policemen and good Samaritans nearby who heard her scream, but they were unable to ascertain the direction from whence it came. She was threatened with bodily harm again. She was pushed across two fields. She begged for clemency, but he only responded by punching her in the mouth. He forced her down to the ground and lay beside her. They stayed there until all signs of the search party tapered out. The attacker told her he would kill her, cut her head off, and bury it. He forced kisses on her and molested her groin and breasts. She begged him to stop, mentioning her two children. She didn't have children, but she was willing to say anything to elicit his mercy. Strangely, he became calm after this. After they lay in silence for a moment, she asked him if she could go home. He refused this request. He said, I'm drunk. I don't know what I am doing. I just felt I had to murder somebody. Eventually, he granted her permission to leave. Strangely, he even volunteered to go to the police station with her so she could report him. Assuming it was a ruse and a trap, she declined. He walked her home. He left when he got there. Six hours later, she went to the police and described the incident. He was charged and remanded to jail. Manuel was tried in court on October 17th. He defended himself, and this time he was acquitted. December 30th, 1955, 17-year-old Anne Nylans was waiting for her date. She was never seen alive again. The next day, a man named George Gribben was walking across a golf course when he discovered the body of a woman lying in the prone position. Her clothing was disheveled. She had been bludgeoned. He was deeply disturbed by the gaping wounds. He could see brain matter and fragments of skull between the edges of the wounds. Gribben notified the police. Anne's footprints covered a large distance, suggesting she had been chased. Someone reported having heard a woman screaming that evening. A large amount of blood was found near a tree stump. Mixed within the blood were portions of bone, hair, and tissue. She had not been raped, though semen stains were found on her clothing. There were scratches and bruises on her hands. Her clothing was torn. Her underwear was missing. The cause of death was determined to be a crater-shaped injury on her head. She was stricken on her head multiple times. The vault of her skull was demolished. Many young men who resided in the area were questioned about the incident, Peter Manuel among them, but they were all dismissed without charges. June 15, 1956. Ellen Petrie, also known as English Nell, was a prostitute. 
She was found stabbed to death on a back street in Glasgow. She bled out of a deep gash on her thigh. There were no arrests at that time. September 16th, 16-year-old Vivienne Watts and 17-year-old Deanna Valente and her sister were found dead in Vivienne's home in one of the bedrooms. As their corpses lay in bed, blood ran from their noses and mouths onto the linens. There were gunshot wounds on their heads. Vivienne was found in another bedroom. The covers were pulled up to her chin. She was shot in the head. There were other signs of foul play, such as a struggle. Several objects were strewn about the floor, like clothing. Furniture had been turned over. Vivienne's final death throes manifested as three or four loud snorts as she was discovered. The girls were not raped, but their clothing had been tampered with in such a way that their crotches were exposed. Vivienne had a bruise on her chin, suggesting she had been punched. Bruises were found on the mons pubis. William Watt, Vivienne's father, was charged for this crime. One curious detail of Peter Manuel's home invasions was the vandalism. He would deliberately throw furniture over, muss up bed linens, throw condiments and other substances on the floor. He would take items that were not valuable while occasionally leaving articles like jewelry on the floor. March 23, 1956. Peter Manuel and an accomplice broke into the canteen of Blanta Reform Colliery. They were arrested and charged. Manuel represented himself in court as usual, but that time his argument didn't hold up so well, and he was given an 18-month prison sentence. He served his time in the same prison as William Watt. Watt was released from prison on December 3rd. Though relieved to be a free man, few on the outside believed he was innocent, so his emancipation was bittersweet. As William went about the business of rebuilding his life, he found himself approached by members of the criminal underworld, some of whom he met in prison. They would tell him rumors about Peter Manuel's involvement in the murder of his daughter. By January 1957, a detective became convinced, based on many statements and his examination of the evidence, that Peter Manuel was responsible for the murder of Anne Neelands. Further speculation led to his belief that Manuel was the murderer of the Watts family. It was now widely believed among the investigative staff of Glasgow's police force that Peter Manuel was a murderer. Manuel met with police officials and fed them lies about the man he blamed for the crimes, that being Charles Tallis, who was his accomplice in the aforementioned burglary. The problem was, the details were inconsistent with those that were gleaned by investigating the crime scene and other clues and leads. Joe Brannan was Peter Manuel's accomplice in an aborted robbery in 1956 that led to Brannan getting caught. Joe didn't rat on him, but later police persuaded him to inform on Peter. Manuel trusted him since he had not turned him in before 
and he felt comfortable about confiding in him. Brandon would go on to be a key witness for the prosecution at Manuel's murder trial. Due to the testimony of former accomplices and exemplary investigative work by the police, Peter Manuel was taken into custody. He agreed to write a confession. This is that confession. 15th of January, 1958. To Detective Inspector McNeil, I hereby promise to you personally that I am prepared to give information to you that will enable you to clear up a number of unsolved crimes which have occurred in the county of Lanarkshire in the past two years. This promise is given that I might release my father and my family from any obligations or loyalties they may feel on my behalf. I wish to see my parents and make a clean breast with them first. The crimes I refer to above are crimes of homicide. I further wish to stress that I volunteer this statement of my own free will, without duress or pressure of any description being brought to bear on me. Signed, Peter Manuel. He said to the police, This won't do. I'll write you another. 15th of January, 1958. To Detective Inspector McNeil, I hereby freely and voluntarily give the following promise. I will lead information about the following specified crimes. Anne Neelands, the Watt murders, Isabel Cook, the Smart murders, on condition that my father is released and allowed to see me with my mother. The information I refer to concerns me, Peter Thomas Manuel, and my part in the above-mentioned crimes. I will give complete and concise information on these crimes that will clear them up completely. Peter Manuel. This is a transcript from Peter Manuel's confession regarding the Smart murders. I did it about six o'clock in the morning of New Year's Day. I got in the kitchen window. I went into a bedroom and got 18 or 20 pounds in new notes and four or five ten shilling notes in a wallet. It was in a jacket hanging on a chair in the man's room. I shot the man first, and then the woman, and then I shot the boy. But at first, I thought it was a man in the bed. I then went to the living room and ate a handful of wee biscuits from a tray on a chiffonnier, and I got about 18 shillings from a red purse in the woman's handbag. I took the man's keys and then took the car. The car key was on a bunch on a ring. I put it in the Ranco car park and took it to Florence Street the next day. I left it there about 8 o'clock the next morning. I gave a policeman a lift on the way. He is a young fellow who lives at Poborn. But I never took these cigarettes I saw in the papers. I threw the gun in the Clyde and the keys in the Calder at the bridge. I think I threw the purse there, too. Manuel led police to the spot where he disposed of Isabel Cook's body. She was wearing a woolen cardigan and a skirt. Her skirt had been pulled up to her waist. She was naked below her waist, aside from a suspender belt. She died from asphyxiation. Her scarf hung from her mouth as it had been used as a gag. Her brassiere was wrapped around her throat. It was used as a garret.
It was deeply planted within her skin and was extracted with concentrated effort. There were bruises on her left eye and on other areas of the left side of her face. She had been punched in other areas so hard they did irrevocable damage in their own right. Following this, Manuel gave a third statement on January 16, 1958. I am at present in custody at County Police Headquarters, Hamilton, on a charge of murder. I have been informed that I am not obliged to say anything unless I wish to do so, but whatever I say will be taken down in writing and may be given in evidence. I have been informed that I am entitled to have the benefit of legal advice before making this statement. I wish to make a statement. I hereby confess that on the first day of January 1956, I was the person responsible for killing Annie Nylans. On the 17th of September 1956, I was responsible for killing Mrs. Marion Watt and her sister, Mrs. George Brown, also her daughter, Vivian. On the 28th of December 1957, I was responsible for killing Isabel Cook. On January the 1st, 1958, I was responsible for killing Mr. Peter Smart, his wife Doris, and their son. I freely admit and acknowledge my guilt in the above-mentioned crimes and wish to write a statement concerning them. On the 1st of January 1956, I was in East Kilbride at about 7 p.m. in the evening. At about 7.30 p.m., I was walking towards the cross when I met a girl. She spoke to me and addressed me as Tommy. I told her my name was not Tommy, and she said she thought she knew me. We got to talking, and she told me she had to meet someone, but she did not think they were turning up for the meeting. After a while, I asked her if she would like some tea or coffee. She assented, and we went into the Willow Cafe. I do not remember how long we were there, but it was not long. When we came out, she said she was going home, and I offered to see her home. She said she lived miles away, and that I would probably get lost if I took her home. I insisted, and she said, all right. We walked along the road up to Max Welton Road. From there, we went along a curving road that I cannot name. About halfway along this road, I pulled her into a field gate. She struggled and ran away, and I chased her across a field and over a ditch. When I caught up to her, I dragged her into a wood. In the wood, she started screaming, and I hit her over the head with a piece of iron I picked up. After I had killed her, I ran down a country lane that brought me out at the General's Bridge at the East Kilbride Road. I do not know where I flung the piece of iron. I then ran down to High Blantyre and along a road that brought me to Bardike's Road. I went along Bardike's Road and over the railway up to where I live. I got home about 10.15 p.m. On the 16th of September 1956, I left the Wood Inn Hotel, Mosend, at 10 p.m. in the evening. I took two women into Glasgow. One... I dropped from a taxi at 283 High Street, Glasgow. The other one I took to Murchiston Street in North Kerntine. I left her there and took the taxi to Parkhead Cross. At the cross I caught the bus to Birkinshaw. 
When I arrived home, I met a man I knew, and he took me in a car up to Burnside. He had another man and a woman with him. We broke into a house in Fencebank Avenue. Number flung the gun in the Clyde at the suspension bridge. I got the gun in a public house in Glasgow called the Mercat Bar, which is at Glasgow Cross. I do not remember the date I got the gun. I got the gun as one of a pair I bought. The man who fixed it for me told me the two men who came into the pub were policemen. The other gun was taken by a man from Burnbank. I never found out what became of it. On the 28th of December, 1957, I went to Mount Vernon about 7 p.m., going by bus from Birkinshaw to Mount Vernon. I walked up a road leading to the railway bridge that runs from Bothwell to Shettleston. Just over the bridge, I met a girl walking. I grabbed her and dragged her into a field on the same side as Ryland's Riding School. I took her along the field following the line in the Bothwell direction. I took her handbag and filled it with stones from the railway. Before going any further, I flung it in a pond in the middle of a field. I then made her go with me along towards the dog track. When we got near the dog track, she started to scream. I tore off her clothes and tried something around her neck and choked her. I then carried her up a lane into a field and dug a hole with a shovel. While I was digging, a man passed along the lane on a bike. So I carried her again over a path beside a brickwork into another field. I dug a hole next to a part of the field that was plowed and put her in it. I covered her up and went back the way I came. I went back to the road and got her shoes, which had come off at the outset. I took these and her clothes and scattered them about. The clothes I flung in the River Calder at Broomhouse. The shoe I hid on the railway bank at the dog track. I went up the same path and came out at Baileyston. I walked along the Edinburgh Road and up Aitkenhead Road to Birkinshaw, getting there about 12.30 a.m. The first hole I dug I left as it was. On the morning of the 1st of January, I left my home at about 5.30 a.m. I went down a park path to the foot of Lucy Bray. Crossing the road, I went into Sheepburn Road and broke into a bungalow. I went through the house and took a quantity of banknotes from a wallet I found in a jacket in the front bedroom. There were about 20 pounds to 25 pounds in the wallet. I then shot the man in the head and next the woman. I went in the next room and shot the boy. I did not take anything from the house except money. I got the gun from a man in Glasgow in a club. The Gordon Club. I took a car from the garage and drove it up to the car park at Ranko Works. Later that day I took the gun into Glasgow and threw it into the Clyde at Glasgow Green. The next day, Thursday the 2nd, I saw the car was still in the car park, so drove it to Glasgow about 8 o'clock in the morning and left it in Florence Street in the south side. Then I caught a bus back home. I got into the house through a window and left by the back door. Signed, Peter Manuel. On February 15th, Peter Manuel was formally charged with nine murders. 
he was convinced that he could win over the jury, especially the female contingent. To quote Manuel in conversation with his attorneys, they will know I am innocent. I have a way with women. He would go on to fire his lawyers and represent himself. He went on a hunger strike. Decades before the idea for the movie Philadelphia was so much as a stem cell in somebody's brain, he assumed that appearing ashen, frail, and emaciated would help him sell himself as incapable of brutal sexual assault and murder. Ultimately, he didn't remain committed to his fasting regimen. He was evaluated by a psychiatrist once again. Though any practitioner worth their salt in that field would have recognized the symptoms of a psychopath within him, he was found to be capable of standing trial. May 12, 1958. The judge pronounced that though Manuel's attempt at representing himself demonstrated a high level of skill, he was unable to convince the jury that he was innocent. He was found guilty of eight of the murders. He was not found guilty of the murder of Anne Nylans due to the lack of evidence. July 11, 1958. Peter Manuel was hanged at Barlini Prison. His last words were, Turn up the radio and I'll go quietly. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.